Good morning. Um, last week, I had mentioned that uh, I wanted to go over some principles of Christian leadership this week. Um, but there was a, a, I want to do a little more study and preparation before we get into that. Uh, there's really a lot to that. So this week, I want to cover pretty plain and simple. I want to cover the gospel uh, in its entirety. Okay, um, so this week, what I mean by that is I want to cover who God is, who we are, who Jesus Christ is, and what he's done for us. We're going to define what repentance is, and we're going to define what real belief is. I know that seems like a lot, but um, but I think we can handle it. So, I titled this lesson, God is Good. Now, full disclosure, um, these thoughts... Uh, this this lesson um, is something that I picked up from Paul Washer. Okay, uh, this isn't something profound that you're gonna that I came up with. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel, uh, nor should I be, or should any pastor be, um, or teacher. Um, we should be preaching and teaching the truths and principles of the scriptures, and maybe just conveying them in a way that maybe gets you to think about them. Um, Maybe in a way that you haven't before. So this this lesson is titled, um, God is Good. So here's the, uh, here's the scriptures that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I'll be reading out of the New King James. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk about the gospel for a minute. Because the gospel begins with God. You see, the whole problem really comes back to the nature of God because God is good. God is just. God is holy. God cannot violate his attributes. He cannot do something that contradicts himself. He is a righteous God. Now, that's a good thing. Um, It would be terrifying to know that this universe was created by an evil God. So it's good that God is just. But if God is just, that presents us with a problem. Because if God is just, what does he do with us? Um, Now, I want to illustrate this for just a minute because we've talked about and just scratch the surface who God is. But I want to tell you this story about uh, a friend of mine that I worked with. So over the years of me working for the state, um, we do a lot of different things, but we were uh, cutting trees or we trimming trees one day and, and uh, we'd move up about 15, 20 feet uh, every few minutes. And um, so I'd have a guy driving a truck for me, a big dump truck, and I'd just hop on the side, you know, maybe I'd throw my arm in the door or something and we'd pull up a little bit. So everybody at work knows me. So, um, Right before I hopped up on the truck this time, I looked down on the ground, and there's a beer bottle and a cigarette butt. So I was like, oh, I'm going to get a cheap laugh here. And I reached down, and I picked each one up. So when I hopped up on the side of the truck, I threw my arms in like this, and I'm holding the beer bottle and a cigarette butt. And the guy that was driving, he was laughing, you know. And um, he was laughing because of how uncharacteristic that is of me. Um, 
And I didn't think anything else about it, really. Well, about 20 to 30 minutes later, we got a break. We had to go um, take this truck off somewhere. So I'm riding with him, and he just kind of looks at me while he's driving. He looks over at me. He said, let me ask you something. I said, okay. He said, do you think drinking alcohol makes you a bad person? Kind of thought about it for a second. I said, no, I don't. Um, But let me ask you this. Do you think that it makes you a bad person? And he said, uh, no, I don't. And I said, well, then what does make you a bad person? Now, for those of you who are listening that know me, uh, most of you have probably heard this before. Um, Again, this isn't something that I came up with. I use this method. I call it the Ray Comfort method. It's the good person test. Now, the reason I use this is because for evangelizing, there's really not a better method that I've seen or witnessed so far to to um, kind of break the ice. Because if I wanted to talk to a Muslim or a Jew or um, maybe just an unbeliever, an atheist, any, I, you know, I could either spend all this time studying their belief and things like that and trying to see what, or I can go straight to the conscience. So that's what I did with this good person test that I've been taught and I've used. So anyway, so I said, so what does make, make you a bad person? He sat there and thought about it for a minute. He goes, well, I think that if you're a liar, that you're a, uh, probably a bad person. I think, um, I think if you're, if you steal things, you know, that's not yours that people spend their hard earned money buying. I think that's pretty bad. I think, um, think if you cheat on your wife obviously you're a pretty bad person or if you uh, kill somebody and I said uh, I said yeah that, I agree with you um, so we kind of stopped and I said well, let me ask you this so would you consider yourself to be a good person and he said yeah yeah I would I said okay well do you mind me asking you a few questions to see if that's if that's true I said no I don't mind at all I said okay so we're going to use your standard here Okay, so um, have you ever told a lie? And he kind of looked at me and grinned. And, and you guys have probably heard this already. I've, I've mentioned this several times in class, but it's, it's, um, it's effective. And he said, yeah. I said, so what does that make you? And he said, well, I'm not a liar. I said, well, how many lies does it take to be a liar? Isn't it true you tell one lie and you're a liar? He goes, I guess so. He said, I said, so what does that make you? He said, I guess I'm a liar. I said, okay, uh, have you ever stolen anything or taken anything that's not yours? He said, yeah. I said, what does that make you? He said, a thief. And I said, no, it doesn't. It makes you a lying thief. You know, and he started laughing. So we kind of, I tried to keep it light while I'm really, you know, I'm really pricking his conscience here. I said, uh, you ever cheated on your wife? No, never done that. I said, okay, well, did you know that Jesus Christ said that Whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart already. I said, have you ever looked at a woman with lust? He said, yes, I have. I said, okay, one more question. I said, have you ever killed anybody? He said, no, I'm good on that front. Never killed anybody. I said, did you know that Jesus Christ says that if you've ever hated anyone, that you've committed murder in your heart already? And I said, have you ever hated anyone? He said, Yes, I have. I said, now I'm not judging you, but by your own admission and your own standard, you're a lying 
thieving, adulterous murderer at heart. So if you were to stand before God on judgment day, would you be innocent or guilty? That would be guilty. Heaven or hell? So, I'm telling you this because I want us to understand something. Okay? Um, Because I want to share with you today the most terrifying truth in the scriptures, the most terrifying attribute of God himself. Okay, are you ready for it? It's that God is good. God is good. Luke 18 and 19 says, So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. So you may be thinking, well, what's the problem with that, with God being good? What's the problem with a good God? Why is that bad news? Why is it terrifying that God is good? It's terrifying to know that God is good because we are not. Romans 3.12 says they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Because by that standard that I measured my friend with, that's the same measure that we will be measured with, the Ten Commandments. And by that measurement, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what does a good God do with people like us, with sinners? You see, we've sinned against God. And as David says, we've God, I've sinned against you and you alone. You see, if God is truly just, then what does he do with us? Because if a just God simply pardons the wicked, he is no longer just. If, if a judge knew that someone had committed murder, but he let him go, he is no longer a good judge. If a holy God calls the wicked to himself to have fellowship with him, he is not a holy God. So the great question of all the scripture is this. How does a just God pardon wicked men and still be just? Numbers 14, 18 says, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but... He by no means clears the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. He will not clear those who are guilty. Which we know is all of us. So how does a holy God call wicked men into fellowship with him and still be holy? Well the answer is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see this tremendous, unique revelation of the fullness of God's attributes. God is just. He must condemn our sin. And God is love. And so, he he demonstrates that love by becoming a man in his son, Jesus Christ, who lives a perfect life. And then he goes to that tree, and on that tree the sins of his people are cast upon him. And all the justice of God, 
all the wrath of God that we deserve, that we are storing up because of our sin is thrown down upon the head of Christ. The exact measure that was required in order to fully satisfy the justice of God. After suffering, Christ said, It is finished. And that meant that he did what was required to satisfy God's justice against God's people. He paid the price in full. Now, this is such a very important uh, thing to understand here. So I want you to listen close. It's important to know that it wasn't that our sins were atoned for simply because the Romans beat Jesus up and nailed him to the cross. That's, that's not why we're forgiven. Our sins were atoned for because on that tree, he bore our sin. He bore our sin. He took it upon himself, and it pleased the Lord. It pleased God to crush him. Now, what do I mean that it pleased him? Would it please me to, to pour out my wrath on my son because of someone else? What Does it please God that he allowed Jesus Christ to be, to suffer like he did and die? It pleased him because it was only by this act, this demonstration of love, It was only by this that we might be able to be reconciled back to him. The only way. Think about Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover their own sin, right? They they took the fig leaves and they tried to cover their nakedness. And God punished their sin. He said, because of this, you will now surely die. But what did he do? He covered their sin with, with, with the adequate sacrifice. Right? Adam and Eve saw the, the fig leaves, and he says, that is not what will cover this. So the first death that we read about in Scripture is actually the death that God killed an animal, provided the sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve's sin. So the wrath, um, the wrath of God that should have fallen upon me and you fell upon his only begotten son, and he suffered that in full. The entire consequence, judgment that we were to face or that we would have faced when we died because of our sin fell upon him paid that price he died and and he died because the wages of sin is death that's how we know that's how we can be assured that he bore our sin because he died and on the third day he rose again from the dead and now he is seated at the right hand of God and there is no other name no other name whereby we might be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ he is the way He is the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. We know 
that there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And in order to be saved, the Bible calls all men to repent of their sins and to believe the gospel. Now this is where we need to do some digging. What does it mean to repent? Now many have defined that term as to change one's mind, and I've even used that reference in this class because that's what the word means in Greek, uh, to change one's mind. And that truth is there, but it means so much more than what you and I can conceive in our culture today. Because you might think, well, to change your mind, that's, that's pretty superficial. And it might be, but then it's really not if you understand what the mind is. You see, the mind in the Bible refers to the mind, uh, the heart is referred to a lot. It's the control center of a human being. It's the control center of our will, of our emotions, of our intellect, of our decision-making process. So what he's saying is if you have a changed mind, if you change your mind, then everything else will change along with it. Now let me give you a perfect description of repentance, okay? The Apostle Paul, he had a change of mind. Now, when he left to go on the road to Damascus, he left with orders to capture and kill Christians. Uh, now, now, why did he do that? Because this is what he believed. This is what Paul thought. Paul thought that Jesus of Nazareth was the greatest blasphemer that ever had walked the planet. That's what he thought. He also thought that the Christians were a terrible group that ought to be destroyed. That's what he thought. And then on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And what happened? His thinking changed. His entire reality was proved to be wrong. Everything that he thought about reality, especially regarding God, was wrong. He recognized that he was wrong and began to think completely different. He now thought, what? That Jesus was the Son of God and the long-awaited Messiah. He now thought that the Christians were the very people of God, and because his thoughts were changed, everything else changed. After being baptized, he began to minister and to preach the gospel and to be persecuted for the very faith that he was once persecuting. You see, to repent is to realize that all your thinking, your entire view about reality was wrong, and then to see and to submit to God's truth about who he is, about who you are, and about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Now the question is, have you repented? Has your mind really been changed? And has that change of mind led to a change of intellect, a change of the will, a change of your emotions, a change of your decisions and how you make them? The sins that you once loved, do you now hate? The holiness that you once ignored, do you now desire? The Christ that you had no part with, that you lived apart from, do you now esteem him? You cling to him. 
Do you consider the kingdom of heaven to be a pearl of great price? Those are certain evidences that a work of repentance has been done in your heart. Now, not only must we repent, but we must believe in Jesus Christ. To recognize that there's absolutely nothing in us that can save us. You know, the the hymn writer wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring, but only to the cross of Christ I cling. That one sentence is a recognition that you have only one hope, and 100% of that hope is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That you know that you can't save yourself. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we know that we can do nothing to save ourselves to the point where someone suggests that we would enter the kingdom of heaven by some works of righteousness, that it would cause you to to to, to reject that as the apostles did. Right? They tore their clothes and they said, no, no, blasphemy, no. And that we would tell those people that I am saved for one reason and one reason alone. That 2,000 years ago, the Son of God bled and died for me. So salvation comes to us through repentance and through faith in Jesus Christ. So now, if you truly believe in Christ, you have eternal life. But how do you know that you have truly believed? Even if you have had some sort of conversion experience and you felt some sort of peace of God, or maybe you raised your hand at a, at, at a big crusade, maybe you, you repeated a prayer, maybe you even stepped out of the pew bravely one Sunday and go up to the altar and, and, and poured your heart out to Christ. How can we know that that is real? Well, one of the ways that you know that it is real is that it will continue. It's not that necessarily that emotional high will continue because emotions fade, they ebb and flow. But what will continue is that you will continue to grow in grace. You will continue to deepen in your faith. You will continue to deepen in your repentance. And little by little, you will be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Now you might ask, does a real Christian sin? Yes. Sadly enough, yes. Can a real Christian fall into sin? Yes. But here's the difference. A real Christian cannot live in a continuous state of carnality, a continuous state of immaturity, to be a practitioner of sin. Because the Bible tells us that he who began a good work in us will finish it. You know, I can't remember who it is that said it, but somebody said, okay, so now that you're saved, you're telling me that, that okay, you're saved forever, so you can just sin as much as you want to. 
He said, well, in a sense, yes. I, but I sin more than I want to. Because since I've been saved, I've been transformed, and now I don't want to sin at all. You know, it's... I think I may have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I actually, we were talking about deceit, and I confess that that I had um, told a lie. This is after my conversion, true conversion. I, I had told a lie, and... And it was one of those that no one would ever find out about it. You know, no one ever would ever hear about it or be able to know unless I told them. But when I did that, I felt real sorrow. I, I'm not I'm not saying this to sound holy. I'm, I'm being transparent. I felt real sorrow. Because, not because I was getting caught. Not bec- And it wasn't just because I was like... I'm not doing what I said I'm going to do or being who I said I'm going to be. And all of that was also there, but the real reason is because I knew that I had had disappointed my Father in Heaven. I knew that that's another another hit with the hammer to drive those nails in my Savior's hands. It's another thorn on the crown on His head. It's another lash on His back. It's my sin that did that. The Bible talks about over in Hebrews 12 that one of the greatest signs of true conversion is that God will watch over you with his loving parental care like a father, and he will even discipline you and chastise you when you turn off the path. Look in Proverbs 3. You know, if you're sinning and God isn't chastising you, then maybe you should examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because if you're one of his, he won't let you he won't let you continue in that path. Now, once you're saved and you sin, it's not that, and, and he chastises you, it's not that his attitude towards you has changed or that you've changed positionally with him, that you've gone back to to being a sinner and no longer a child of his. No. But because he now loves you, as his child, that you're his child now, now he desires your holiness. You see, once you become a Christian, you become a part of God's providence, and he who began a good work in you will finish it. Now, if you guys have heard nothing else, I beg that you listen to this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God is just, that man is radically depraved and worthy of all condemnation, that in order to forgive men, God's justice had to be first satisfied, and that was done on the cross where Christ stood in the law place of his people. He bore our sin and was crushed under the full weight of God's wrath against them. Dying, he paid the price in full, and now he has risen from the dead, and now all men everywhere may be saved through faith, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and the evidence of that repentance unto salvation, the evidence of that faith unto salvation, will be the continuing work of God 
leading to holiness. So here's my, here's my challenge to you this week. Ask yourself these questions. Does this sound like you? Have you truly repented? Do you truly believe not only that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but that he loved you so much that he chose to take your place on the cross to bear your sins, to have God's full wrath and justice poured out on him so that you might be saved? If you do truly believe that, has your faith deepened? Has your repentance deepened? Have you grown in Christ or are you stagnant? If, if, if you haven't grown in your faith, if you haven't grown in your repentance, if, if, if your walk with Christ has, has, uh, hasn't grown since your conversion, these are red flags that you should be not just waving but that you should be acknowledging and saying something is amiss. Let's examine myself to be sure that I'm in the faith. Let me examine myself according to the word, to our empirical data, to see if I line up with that, to, to what a Christian is. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, that, that you will be perfected is at the day of salvation because that's not we know that is not how God has ordained us to to uh, into salvation that we will be perfected on the ju- on the day of judgment when we die we will be perfected then but until then from the time that we're unsaved to saved what changes there is our position from light into darkness from an enemy of God to a child of God. And with that, from then to the rest of our lives should be a continuing pursuit of holiness. And we should see that growth. Others should see that growth in us. Now, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir. But if this sounds like you, then maybe something's amiss. Go back to the, to the gospel and cling to it. See if you're just walking the walk or if you've been transformed. Now, I know this may have seemed more of a lecture, maybe maybe even more of a sermon than, than previous weeks. But we all still need the gospel. You know, the, the, the purpose of this class is to edify and equip the saints. If you're listening, this lesson should have edified you one of two ways. Either you adhere to this, to this teaching, and this teaching, going back to it, has caused us to 
analyze it a little deeper and get a little closer into it to understand who we are positionally and where we are and where we should be. Or this will edify you because these attributes are not found in you. So now maybe you're asking the question, did I ever really get saved? But the second purpose of this class is to equip you. To equip you with this message. You know, the message of the gospel is not really a difficult message to to convey. In the sense of it is not uh, overly complicated. But we need to be ready to present it to all of those around us. Now, don't misunderstand me. You know, my son was saved recently, and it wasn't me that saved him, right? Um, it was it was God. God called him to Himself and allowed me to do the work. But I hope that this message, that you are equipped well with this message because if you are given the opportunity to witness to somebody really, to evangelize somebody, you know that those opportunities don't come overly often. Not the meaningful ones, not the ones where they're really listening. And one of the most discouraging things in the world is when you finally are get to that point to where not only can, are you allowed to present the gospel to them and you're prepared and and you, and you present it to them clearly because it's not you speaking but it's the spirit speaking through you and they reject it it's disheartening discouraging and then i have to remind myself that it's not up to me to save them I can't save them there's nothing that I can do to save them or to convince someone unless God has called them I had a friend um, that I worked with that I had presented the gospel to and he said you know I'm just gonna I'm, I'm kind of good where I'm at he was young he's about my age and he said you know I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing and you know when I get a little older I'm gonna settle down and and then I'll go to church and then I'll get saved and he kind of had these things lined up like I'm gonna do it now and do this and this and this but for those of us who are saved we know that is absolutely not how God calls us that the message is presented to us and then we must respond to it we can't say I'll, I'll hear it later because that is rejecting it so with my son you know I, I thank God that, that he allowed me to, to do that to, to present the gospel to him to see my son saved it was amazing but I also knew that if, if God was his, his chosen child that he would be saved whether it came from me or his mother or any that he the gospel is going to be presented to him it's just my responsibility to be equipped 
to be prepared enough to present it. The rest of it's up to him. All of it's up to him. I say the rest like I did something. I didn't do anything. He did it. The amount of faith I have, he gave it to me. The amount of wisdom I have, he gave it to me. It's all in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? So I want to encourage you this week. I know this was like, well, this was the gospel. Yeah, but in the words of Paul Washer again, you know, he was he went to do this speaking with uh, of, of a couple thousand people at this huge church, and the pastor came up to him and he said, "Hey, we got you know a couple thousand really devoted Christians here. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what what are you gonna what are you gonna speak on?" And he said, "I thought I'd I thought I'd talk about the uh, the gospel." And he said, "Well, I just told you everyone here is a Christian." And he said, "Well, two things, you know, first uh, I, I do appreciate you telling me that, but I can't." I cannot just believe that everyone here is saved. I can't. Um, because we don't know. You know, we have no idea. People can walk the walk, talk the talk, say the right things, even preach. But we don't know, really, if their heart has been transformed. And the second thing is, that Paul Washer said was, that the gospel is not just for the lost. It's for the saved just as much. You know, anytime I, I, I get run into a wall in my study, when I'm, you know, I'm really trying to grow and I'm, I'm studying in something like uh, Numbers or Deuteronomy or something that's kind of difficult, I'll hit this wall. I'm just like, I know that I can always go back to the book of John and go into the words in red and it will just empower me to break through that wall now I, I won't I'm not saying I'll understand everything that I've read but I know I can always go back to that and I can always cling to that and it's okay if I don't understand why these things were taking place uh, in the book of numbers at that time right now maybe Maybe God hasn't revealed that truth to me yet. Maybe I'm not ready for it. But I know that it's true. So, God is patient with us. Be patient, but be diligent, right? Don't sit around and do nothing. Let's get busy. Let's do the work. Let's not be lazy Christians. Um, I I guess that's 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 really all, all, all pretty much all I have to say this week. Um, God is good, but the next time somebody says God is good, and everybody says all the time and all the time God is good, let that be a firm reminder to you what goodness really is and how we don't line up with it, and how we constantly need His forgiveness and His grace and mercies. So, um, I appreciate all of you who are still watching at home. Um, you know, I, I, I said we would get this audio and video stuff worked out. I, th- I think we have. Um, 
I think it's gotten a lot better. I appreciate you guys watching. I appreciate all of you at home or uh, who who come to class. Also, you know, if you guys go back and watch these as a reference, I appreciate that. I really do. Um, for those of you watching at home, if if you're kind of on the fence about coming into class, you're you know feel free to. Uh, we have class at Old Bridges Chapel at nine thirty in the morning, just like um, here live. Um, we'd love to see you. Um, but if you don't feel comfortable, we understand. And we will continue to make accommodations for you. Um, but I do appreciate you either way. Um, I'd love to see your smiling face, though. Um, but this week I'm going to ask you to to do something maybe. Uh, I don't know that I've asked yet, but it's to, it's to pray, but specifically to pray for our church leadership. Um, you know, we, we often forget that excuse me we often forget the amount of responsibilities that they have um you know they all have jobs husbands wives kids um our pastor has a full-time job and two teenage girls and a wife and bills you know um and then he's got all these other responsibilities just piling on top of it and so does our other church leadership so you know most people don't ever see what happens behind the scenes at church, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress. Um, so y'all pray for them, um, either specifically or, you know, in a broad sense. Uh, they can definitely, I'm sure they would appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, y- y'all y'all please pray for them. Um, they're, they go through a lot. They put a lot of work and effort into uh, making sure that, uh, you guys never even notice that there's a problem. <laughs> so, again, um, I appreciate you guys for tuning in this week and for the weeks prior. Uh, make sure you guys, go, if, if, if you're new here, that you go and check out some of my other videos, um, some of the other lessons I've done. I think they'll pique your interest. And uh, next week we're going to discuss um, the principles of Christian leadership. So, can't wait to see you there. Um, look forward to it. And... Uh, Thank you guys, and and can't wait to see you next week. Thank you. Have a great week.